Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it won't be the first time that Halloween-themed content is spilling over into November, though we've got a really good uh, excuse this time, which is, uh, and I didn't know this before, before we, before we started recording today, our producer Seth was telling us that apparently quite a few Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes have had to air after Halloween because they've been preempted by baseball or something. Yeah, I mean, and of course, you know, we can always drive home the fact that not all scary movies come out during the month of October. Many come out uh, uh, throughout the rest of the year. And ultimately on this show, it's, it's you know, it's kind of Halloween year round. Um, though I guess the the tragedy is that sometimes we put off content. We're like, oh, this will be perfect for Halloween. Let's save this for October. And then we make it through October and we're like, ah, didn't actually fit that one in this year. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe this will happen next October. But hey, we're keeping another tradition alive right now because this is going to be the with, is this the seventh anthology episode we've done for October? I think it is. I think this is number seven. Um, that doesn't mean we've been doing it seven years because some years we've put out more than one volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, basically the idea here is, and these kind of spin off of some old creepypasta episodes that we did back in the day, uh, where we look to the world of horror anthology uh, films and especially TV shows. Uh, we pick something out of the basket and we we sort of use it as an excuse to talk about something something uh, you know sciency or um, you know cultural, basically some sort of sort of topic that that in in many cases might not make for a full episode of stuff to blow your mind on its own. Uh, but the horror anthology episode gives us an excuse to talk about it and vice versa. The topic gives us an excuse to talk about that particular episode. This was especially valuable back in the days before uh, Weird House Cinema when we, we did not have a weekly outlet uh, for, um, for any obsessions with uh, uh, macabre viewings. Though I guess with Weird House, we're always talking about movies, and uh, and and I know specifically what what you've got in your heart with these anthology episodes is like the 90s Outer Limits revival. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I look forward to talking about uh, about one of those. I've, I've really been enjoying uh, watching those throughout the pandemic. Um, my wife and I have been watching uh, these pretty much every week uh, remotely with a couple of friends of ours. Uh, actually, uh, um, uh, they host a, a podcast by the name of Talking Tofu. Uh, so if you want a, like, a, a vegan-themed uh, funny podcast, uh, I recommend that. I don't know if they're going to talk about Outer Limits at all on there. The, maybe they're leaving that all for me. But uh, at any rate, I've really enjoyed um, exploring and re-exploring the 90s Outer Limits episodes because there's, there's some real garbage in there. Um, but there are some great episodes. And, and also just about anybody who was doing TV during the 90s seems to show up at one point or another, as well as a, a wide variety of Canadian actors. So I had to think long and hard about which uh, episode to pick here, and I ended up going with one from the second season. This is the 16th episode of season two, came out uh, in 1996, and it's titled The Deprogrammers. Now, Rob, I ended up having to jump through a lot of digital hoops to watch this one, but I'm so glad I did. This is a phenomenal pick. Yeah, these uh, these episodes were, I, I think they're, as of this recording, they're in kind of a streaming limbo where you can fortunately still purchase them digitally. Uh, which is not the case for some anthology shows. Like I think Tales from the Crypt is still exceedingly hard to get a hold of digitally right now because of some rights issues. Um, Outer Limits, yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna just straight up stream them without purchasing them, sometimes you have to you have to find uh, uh, unique ways of viewing them. Uh, but if you look around, you can find them, and I believe you can digitally purchase these episodes still. Uh, so the Deprogrammers is out there uh, for anyone who who wishes to view it. All right, give me the scoop on the Deprogrammers. All right, so uh, I'm just—I'm not going to give it the full Weird House treatment, obviously, but just to go through the people involved. Um, it was directed by Joseph L. Scanlon, who lived 1929 through 2020, longtime TV genre director who worked on such shows as uh, as Outer Limits. He did seven episodes of that. He did four episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation. He did an episode of Quantum Leap, and seven episodes of Land of the Lost, among uh, many other things. The writer on this was James Crocker, a TV writer who wrote multiple episodes of The Outer Limits, as well as the early 2000s Twilight Zone revival, which um, 
I, I'm not sure I, I remember that one. He also did uh, uh, some Star Trek Deep Space Nine, as well as the 1980s Twilight Zone revival and more. <laughs> but speaking of Trek, uh, the, the most notable casting in this episode is Brent Spiner. Um, yes, Data himself uh, plays this uh, this reprogrammer that, that's uh, introduced as being kind of like this this um, part of the like the human resistance movement. He's there to deprogram people who've been brainwashed uh, by the the enemy alien overlords, and he's a real pleasure in this because you know everybody loves Data. He was great on on Star Trek: Next Generation and in the you know the related movies. Um, some people may know him from Independence Day, uh, seven episodes of Night Court. Uh, he pops up in Shocker and The Aviator, a uh, few episodes of Blunt Talk, various other things, a lot of work. But this is one of the few places, if not the only place I can remember seeing mean Brent Spiner. Like, he's, 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 he's rough and tumble. He's a bad cop in this. Yeah, he is. Uh, I actually, having never seen tons of Star Trek The Next Generation, I remember I a few years back, I was like, okay, everybody my age has watched a bunch of TNG. I should like watch, <laughs> you know, go through it. And I started in the first season and, Ooh, it was, uh, it was rough going. I, I am to understand it gets better as it goes on, but, uh, but I didn't make it all that far though. Of course, you know, he is there in the first season as data. So mm-hmm. when I think of Brent Spiner, I think of Dr. Oaken in Independence Day, who, you know, yeah. who is a, who is really one of the, the biggest rays of sunshine in that movie. He plays a, uh, oh, I don't even know how he, he plays a sort of uh, emotionally stunted sort of childlike uh, scientist who has apparently been in a bunker for 40 years or something. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, um, a, a goofy mad scientist kind of a character. But wait, who is he in Shocker? I've seen Shocker a number of times and I don't remember him at all. Uh, it's listed on his filmography. I've never okay. seen Shocker. I've only uh, heard, heard you gush about it. Uh, so. You heard me gush, huh? <laughs> yeah. I thought you you liked it, right? You have nice things to say about it. I mean, I mean, Shocker is very bad, but it's a, it's an entertaining bad. It's it's ridiculous. All right. Well, well speaking of actors in this, uh, just a couple of others of note here. Um, Eric Anderson plays uh, Evan Robert Cooper. Uh, this is a TV and film actor who played Rob in Friday the Thirteenth: The Final Chapter. Is that one of the good ones? Is that one of the? Are there good ones? That's the that's the last one in which Jason is a human before he okay. is an undead revenant. So it goes one through four. He's a human, and then in the fifth one, it's a copycat killer, and then in the sixth one, that's when he's a revenant. This is the last one before he gets his head cut in half by uh, Corey Feldman. Okay, but Rob, the character in this, is a sort of uh, he's a sort of dashing hero who shows up you know you think he's going to save the day but i think ultimately jason just kills him in a basement <laughs> all right well the, the the basic pitch the plot for this episode of the outer outer limits uh and in the one of the i should drive him one of the great things about these 90s episodes of the outer limits is that generally uh, they're they're very earnest they they really want to say something important about the human condition mm-hmm. and that serious tone is often what makes them so delightful because sometimes there are wonderful sci-fi ideas uh, explored in them. Sometimes not so much. Uh, sometimes the attempt is there, but maybe not the delivery. Uh, but it also makes the things that uh, that don't work, uh, that make uh, you know some of, maybe some of the performances are not that crisp. Uh, it makes them all the more hilarious because they're definitely not aiming for comedy. There may be one or two, I think, that that do kind of aim for something more whimsical and fun. And I think some of those are the ones that really don't hold up. But for the most part, it's uh, it's the seriousness that makes it work. Like if it was more self-conscious, that would actually kind of cheapen it and make it not as fun. Yeah. So in this one, it takes place on a future Earth. Earth, we find out, is ruled by alien overlords called the Torcor. Uh, they're kind of these um, repellent, reptilian humanoid titans who seem to live solitary lives like they as if they evolved from some sort of a solitary predatory species instead of something that had some sort of communal system yeah they're like eight foot tall alligator men so they've got these reptilian outsides and they they're very haughty and they just like to sort of uh, lord around their their bathtub and and yell at their their human servants and say, "Oh, why aren't you bringing me my oil faster?" Yeah, they're kind of like giant reptile Mister Burnses, you know. They're, yes, they're, they're that level of of awful. Um, and I guess there's probably more than a dash of um, 
uh, Battlefield Earth to this as well. Uh, yes. Because, um, of course, that involved uh, super tall alien overlords who, uh, you know, have a, a like a brutal rule imposed over Earth. I made that exact note. I mean, this, uh, to be clear, this episode is much better than Battlefield Earth, but I, I got some of those notes when <laughs> I was just reminded of John Travolta in the movie yelling, I told you to get some man animals in here to fix this. <laughs> yeah, uh, they look great in this, by the way, the, the Torcor. Uh, when we first encounter them, we don't see their faces, we just see their arms. So there's kind of a, a sense of the Onceler in the Lorax. Uh, to it and then later we get to see them more or less in full and uh like like most of these episodes of the outer limits whenever there is a a creature effect it's practical and very well executed so anyway yes we have torcor overlords ruling over everything helping them are these mentally reconditioned human slaves that are called jolem so the idea, at least at the beginning of the episode, is that all of the humans left on Earth after it's been conquered by these aliens are brainwashed into being subservient to their, their new alien masters. Right. And so we meet up with our, our Jolum characters, our main Jolum character, Evan, here. And he's working for a Torcor overlord named Coltac. And there's this scene where they're preparing him his slime bath. They're preparing him his uh, Saragon oil. Uh, the other Jolum drops the Saragon oil and breaks it. And so uh, uh, this, uh, this, so Coltac just brutally murders him. There's a lot of Coltac complaining that the oil is not arriving fast enough. So he's yeah. in his slime bath. Bring it to me. The oil. I need the oil. You Jolum are always so slow. Yeah, there's a, there's a very strong Kang and Kodos uh, vibe to their, their voices in this. Yes, the Kang and Kodos thing was also very strong. And I wonder, what, what is the timing on that? Kang and Kodos. So they, I think, they came out before 96, right? Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. So they must predate this. Though then again, I mean, this is, I think, the same year as Citizen Kang, which is maybe the closest mm. analog. Yeah, I, my my bet is they're both essentially inspired by some of the same uh, sci-fi precursors, mm-hmm. except, of course, The Simpsons took it in an um, intentionally comedic direction, and The Outer Limits took it in a serious direction, not realizing how comedic uh, it comes off. Uh, uh, but it's really amusing in this episode. Yeah, it is uncanny how much Coltax sounds like Kang. Now, um, the, the next big phase in this is that we find out, well, Evan... Uh, first of all, is spared. Uh, he's he's not going to die. Uh, and as luck would have it, he's about to go off to rejuvenation training uh, because a good Jolum is worth keeping around for a very long time via life-extending alien technology. So he boards a bus to the Bliss Renewal Center, um, which uh, reminded when I saw this one for the first time, it just instantly made me think of Simpsons and re-education. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, um, just sit back and let the hooks do the work. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, but on the way, he is kidnapped by the human resistance movement, and they attempt to deprogram him to to remove all of this uh, this this uh, alien brainwashing that has turned him into a servant and make him part of the resistance movement to take back Earth. And this is where we meet Brent Spiner's character, resistance deprogrammer, Professor Trent Davis, who is all about stomping a mud hole in a Jolum if it busts up that that old Jolum conditioning. Yeah, and I guess this is playing up on the idea of an uh, an aggressive practice of deprogramming, um, trying to, to say, okay, the, the, this guy, Evan here, the, the main character, has been... Uh, has been conditioned or you might say brainwashed uh, by by this alien programming that to to sort of like make him fear having a will of his own and you and Brent Spiner's ideas you got to really like make him snap out of it with a bunch of kind of uh, brutal and even violent tactics yelling in his face burning him cutting him that kind of thing. Now, the, the twist here, and so you know, st- standard warning if you don't want this spoiled, if you want to go out and see this for yourself, pause right now and then come back later. But the twist is that uh, they, they, they put him through this deprogramming system. It seems to work. He's part of the resistance now. He helps them in an attempt to assassinate um, his former overlord. And then what do we find out at the end? We find out Oh, Brent Spiner was a Jolum all along himself. He was he was not part of the human resistance. He was just part of a rival Torcor's plot to take out one of his uh, his 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 rival alien overlords. 
Right. So what you thought was a was a human rebellion against these alien invaders was in fact an intra-alien political struggle. Yes. Which is a nice twist. Uh, and, uh, and one of the interesting things about these Outer Limits episodes is they usually have a twist. So if you watch enough of them, you end up spending half the time just trying to guess what the twist is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- did you guess this one, Joe? I Well, I did sort of see the twist coming, but only because I knew there was going to be a twist. If I mm-hmm. had not known there was going to be a twist, I might not have. There may be episodes where the twist is there's no twist, but uh, I can't think of what it would be offhand. There are some episodes where the twist occurs super early. And then it's all about sort of the the, uh, the ramifications of that twist. But uh, there's a twist in there somewhere. Are there kind of a, a happy like San Junipero of the uh, of the Outer Limits? Um, there might be. Uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, nothing's coming to mind. Um, <laughs> the real twist is this is so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, you know, because you have the, the the cool narration that comes on at the end, where the narrator kind of drives it home for you, and usually it's something like. When humans expand into the stars, they'll deal with their greatest enemy themselves. You know, it's always something like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. This one has some kind of pretentious phrases about free will. It was like, at what point does a human's free will cease to exist? And at that point, would we still be human? Questions that are, are not really explored in this episode. It's not, no, not really, not really at about all. those questions. The episode we're discussing here, naturally, this all takes place within the context of an extreme sci-fi scenario. Humans are conditioned to be jolums, presumably from a very young age, and then this conditioning is continually enforced across a lifespan that, that might prove quite long due to these rejuvenation treatments. And there certainly is a human component to the culture that forces this worldview on them, but at the helm of all of this are these alien masters. Well, one thing, though, you mentioned being conditioned since childhood. In this case, they say that the alien invasion was only about two years ago. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, so really, these guys haven't been – I guess that's the, the, the long view is that, mm-hmm. uh, is that they're going to keep them around for a while. Uh, yeah. But, but Evan has, couldn't have been a Jolim for that long. Uh, but still, the idea is that he's he's largely forgotten his pre- previous life. He's forgotten what it was to be a free human, and now all he thinks is is the Jolum way. So, um, again, this episode is called "The Deprogrammers," and uh, w- when the term deprogramming has been used before in the context of, of real world ideologies, we're generally talking about a scenario of an alleged cult or some other group with an ideology that's deemed harmful. And I was looking into this a bit. Uh, the, the idea emerged uh, pretty much during the 1970s as a part of uh, the, the counter-cult movement. Uh, now, before we do that forces us to back up a, another step, because, uh, of course, the first big question would be, well, what constitutes a cult? Um, you'll typically encounter a list of criteria that include stuff like separation from one's pre-existing support group, devotion to a single domineering figure, I read one list that focused on charismatic leaders, transcendent belief systems, systems of control, and systems of influence. But obviously, there's a great deal of ambiguity in in some of these um, definitions. And while we can all point to specific, uh, especially historic examples of destructive cults and say, yes, well, that's a cult, you can also throw this word at various religious and political ideologies, um, now, certainly harmful and abusive cults it do exist centered around harmful ideologies, harmful systems, and or harmful individuals. Uh, so the, the question isn't whether such groups exist, but to what degree other groups are lumped in with them, uh, etc. Now, another key to understanding this idea of deprogramming is the notion of brainwashing. Uh, this was a term coined by journalist and propagandist Edward Hunter, who lived 1902 through 1978, who wrote Brainwashing in Red China, the Calculated Destruction of Men's Minds, a 1952 anti-communism book based on a 1950 article that he wrote. And uh, this was apparently an outlandish idea, uh, even at the time. Contemporary psychologists and, uh, had, it took issue with it. Later commentators would criticize it. Um, but it struck a nerve. It made its way into mainstream fiction even. Uh, and uh, we see that in films like The Manchurian Candidate and you mm-hmm. know, various works of uh, visual or written media. And it also made its way into political discourse. 
I think you can possibly see this this type of idea as being associated with behaviorist trends in psychology that maybe later psychologists would look back on and say that they may have uh, sort of overemphasized the role of like mechanistic conditioning and in, in mm-hmm. how much it could do in shaping a person's cognitive and behavioral uh, tendencies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you take you take some understanding of behavioralism, throw in a few more pop psychologists, a hefty dose of red scare, and you have you have a firm bedrock upon which to build this idea of of uh, of brainwashing. Uh, and and even you you have like for instance uh, the CIA's MK Ultra program gets in on it and tries to uh, to weaponize the idea of mind control, thinking that the enemy may have developed techniques that do this. And uh, ultimately, of course, the MKUltra revolved around seeking answers and methods um, from, from, for instance, the world of psychedelics, thinking, well, psychedelics seem to have this effect on the way people view the world. Maybe we could use that to break down the human mind and then build something up in its place. Yeah, and I think the question is, like, what level of mechanistic control can you ultimately have over somebody else's behavior? Can you uh, mm-hmm. can you essentially just sort of, like, format the hard drive of somebody's brain and completely rewrite their, their personality, their behaviors, and program them like a robot? Or, much more likely, you know, is sort of the reality that in, in the kind of mundane way that we would all observe throughout our lives, yeah, humans can have strong influences on each other, especially if there's uh, if there's a lot of them and they form a kind of uh, uh, a, a reinforced social network. But uh, humans don't have lines of code in their brain, and you can't like just mm-hmm. format the hard drive and rewrite their operating system. Exactly. Uh, an excellent source on this that I recommend um, is a Slate article written by Lorraine Bosonal titled The True Story of Brainwashing and How It Shaped America. Um, it's a great read and gets into all this in detail. Uh, but essentially, they, they write that the brainwashing and mind control, both of these were, were essentially a boogeyman based on fear of communism fear of Eastern culture, and the fear that Russia, China, and and ultimately Korea had something that we didn't have. They had some tool for breaking down people's will and uh, and changing their mindset. Uh, But as it turned out, the, the author describes brainwashing was not real torture and trauma very much were. And for instance, the, the, the POWs that were observed, uh, there, there was this fear that, that oh, well, this, the POWs during the Korean War, that they had undergone some sort of brainwashing, that their, you know, their, their minds had been changed, uh, when in reality, they were, they were just really traumatized individuals uh, subjected to, uh, to torturous conditions. Uh, so there were no brainwashed sleeper agents. They were just traumatized humans. But uh, she, she quotes uh, Timothy uh, uh, Melly, uh, professor of English at Miami University uh, at the time of the writing, at, at any rate. Uh, and the, the, uh, this individual says, quote, the basic problem that brainwashing is designed to address is the question, why would anyone become a communist? And I feel like that kind of summarizes a lot of this uh, uh, right there. Yeah, and I guess you could apply that actually to any kind of ideological or life change that you don't understand. I mean, you can ask the same question mm-hmm. like, why would somebody join what you might think of as a cult? Or why would somebody do X or Y? Something that doesn't at all seem appealing to you and you can't understand why somebody would do it. You may at that point have to assume that it's like it's like the computer of somebody's brain has been hacked and right. there, there's malware in it. When in fact, a more useful model might be to uh, – uh, think more outside the box in terms of what human incentives are. I mean, it, I, I personally think that a lot of times we can just have a failure of imagination in fathoming people's, say, uh, desire for certain kinds of social interactions and how much like a, a something that even is a like truly harmful cult or ideology could fulfill these needs for people if they're not getting them elsewhere. Exactly, yeah. And so, looking back to the early 1970s here, um, at heart, you just had uh, controversial, ideologically driven groups uh, that were often attractive to young people. And this was not an exclusive reality of the 1970s, obviously, but this was a pronounced period of concern over it. Uh, the mid-20th century United States provides more than enough, uh, not only cult panic, but also red panic, satanic panic, and much more. We got panics aplenty. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. We have an endless endless supply of them. And again, not to say that some of these groups were not uh, uh, you know, ultimately harmful, but many of them were not. Uh, many of them were just different ideologies that seemed scary to certain uh, parts of, of, of the public. Uh, I was reading a source on this uh, titled Exit Counseling and the Decline of Deprogramming. Um, uh, this was by sociologist Stephen A. Kent and, um, and a counselor by the name of Joseph P. Uh, uh, Simhart. Uh, it was published in 2002 in Cultic Studies Review. And they were talking about just how this deprogramming approach worked. The, the idea that, okay, someone has been exposed to, uh, to a cult, they've joined a cult, and now we want to get them out of it. What can we do? How do we, how do we reverse mind washing? Well, we have to deprogram them. Um, so uh, so the, first of all, just the, the, the obvious thing here is that, that we know that, that, that brainwashing uh, and, and, and mind control, these are, uh, these are at, at, at least oversimplifications of far more complex problems. And therefore, the idea of deprogramming is based in, in that fallacy and that oversimplification. Yeah, at least from the outside, it has always kind of seemed to me that the the logic behind deprogramming is essentially counter-brainwashing, that someone yeah. has brainwashed you to be in a cult, and now we have to, like, brainwash you back out of it. Like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I took you into this thing, and I'm going to take you out the same way. Uh, so you, you have to, like, uh, use sort of, like, aggressive... Uh, forceful tactics to try to essentially brainwash somebody back into whatever is deemed the legitimate culture is. Yeah. And of course, the first step in all of that is just by establishing or labeling uh, the offending ideology or group as a cult, as something that is in some way deviant, that is engaging in mind control, and therefore there's something to reverse. Uh, but then the deprogramming itself, it often took the form of involuntary extractions from the allegedly deviant ideology or group, and then um, attempts to forcibly reverse the alleged mind control or brainwashing. And, of course, all of this should raise just a number of red flags for anyone, uh, because, uh, uh, among other things, it assumes that the individual, often a young adult, just has no agency or choice. Like, they cannot be trusted to make, make choices about what they believe in and what they do. Um, uh, you know, they were pulled in one direction by a charismatic force, and now we have to pull them back in another direction through intensive, uh, you know, strong arm tactics, like it's a boot camp or something. And then on top of that, you run the risk of engaging in actual kidnapping and abuse in an attempt to deprogram somebody. So you quickly get into very legally and ethically murky waters, assuming you don't land on uh, as bad or as you know worse um, situation uh, you know, compared to what you were attempting to save them from. Um, so charges of religious oppression and civil rights violation were also made. There were various lawsuits uh, related to deprogramming efforts. And so one of the things that, that Kent and his co-author point out is that, um, is that you saw this, um, this movement away from deprogramming, um, uh, this idea that, uh, that, first of all, deprogramming didn't prove all that effective, but then it gave way to techniques that were more progressive, non-coercive, uh, that were more about the autonomy of the individual and an attempt to value everyone present. Um, and find a structure uh, that would like work with everyone's uh, value systems, including the value system um, of the group that the individual is is uh, is they're attempting to extract them from. All right, so maybe there is a recognition of flaws within some of these so-called deprogramming tactics, but of course you would still have the problem that people are ending up in 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 cults that at least you know their loved ones are. Uh, could probably make a strong case or a really negative influence on their lives and are certainly hurting hurting family relationships and stuff like that. Uh, so, is, so is there something else people go to as another option for trying to uh, trying to help guide their loved ones out of these groups? Right, and it seems like yeah, this this idea of exit counseling, or at least this basic approach, seemed to largely replace it. Which, which, which sounds like a no brainer, right? Should we maybe? do something more like counseling and, and what we think of now as intervention with a family member we're worried about, or should we kidnap them uh, with the aid of the, some sort of third party? Um, you know, it, it seems certainly from, from a legal uh, and moral standpoint, uh, there's only one direction you should go in. And it, of course, it also seems that uh, the deprogramming had a, had, a, had a checkered success rate as well. Uh, reminds me of some other stuff I was reading about the, uh, the scared straight programs that, of course, were, were quite big, uh, what I guess back in the, the, the 90s especially, the idea that if you had um, 
uh, like problem kids or kids that uh, that were um, at risk, you would have uh, somebody come in and scare them straight with a really scary talk about prison life, mm-hmm. and how um, you know ultimately some of the the numbers uh, didn't uh, subsequently did not support the idea that this was effective. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I think it comes down to the, just the, the, the reality that, that human beings are far more complicated than that. You know, you can't just scare someone straight you, uh, in order to move them away from, from one uh, way of life or worldview towards another. You can't, you can't rescue them from, uh, from uh, a particular, uh, you know, social group or ideology uh, by essentially kidnapping them and, uh, and, and just pointing them in the other direction like they're an automaton that just needs to be, oh, all you have to do is just get them, wind them up, and point them in the right direction, and they'll be fine. Like, that's just... That's, that's not really how people work. Well, yeah, it just seems like a very top-down way of viewing your ability to influence other people. So if you want to steer somebody toward a, a path in life that you might very well correctly think would be much better for them in the long run and might make them much happier in the long run and make their loved ones happier in the long run, obviously there are ways of doing that other than just trying to sort of like dominate and command them to move in that direction. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously sometimes you can influence people by, by sort of dominating and commanding them, but you can also influence people with say positive incentives, reminding yeah. them of reminding them of all the good things and opportunities that are open to them in, in, in a freer life outside of the strictures of whatever kind of, you know, cult or, or other thing this is. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's this is all ultimately, I think, an oversimplification. But it seems like the mind control deprogramming model was more based in the idea that something was done to an individual, and that thing can be undone. You know, and um, you know, it, it's ultimately based in the in the, uh, the simplistic fallacy of mind control and brainwashing. Now, as for how that relates to this Outer Limits episode, um, you know, I think this episode you know, ultimately has a, a, a dark view on uh, on life and, uh, you know, one, one in which you're going to be manipulated by one alien overlord or another, you know, sort of a you, you've got to serve somebody vibe. Uh, it feels like they're striking a, a very anti-deprogramming chord here, which I, I think is the the cord to strike in your in your fiction, uh, as our main character is is just deprogrammed, quote unquote, into serving just another cruel master. Well, w- one bit of complexity that this Outer Limits episode does get into is we didn't mention that there are actually multiple human parties involved in um, in the deprogramming process. Mm-hmm. So in this episode, you have Brent Spiner, and yeah, and he's playing this like brutal deprogrammer who's you know yelling at uh, yelling at Evan, saying "Wake up, snap out of it!" You know, you're a human, mm-hmm. and like cutting him with a knife and kicking him around and all this. Again, trying to top down, just like dominate and coerce him into into snapping out of it. But then the other side is uh, alongside them is Evan's wife from before the mm-hmm. alien invasion. They had become separated; they didn't know what had happened to each other. And uh, and by getting reacquainted, she actually – I think the episode shows that she is more effective than Brent Spiner is in breaking through with him. And she's actually not, uh, not knowingly part of the alien plot to get him to assassinate. She is also confused about what's going on. Mm, that's right. So in a way, even though it has a cruel twist at the end – the episode might sort of be making the point that y- you might have more success breaking through to somebody who has been uh, who has been conditioned into a state of unfreedom by offering them sort of like positive incentives of love and connection and reminding them of what's good about the other way of life rather, you know, maybe more so than just like beating them and yelling at them and trying to command them to be free. Yeah. It, in in a way, it's a shame they didn't re-explore this world in other episodes of The Outer Limits because the, the 90s Outer Limits show, they did this from time to time. There are, there are Sometimes they would do a series of even like three or four episodes uh, that took place within the same universe and, uh, and continued uh, sometimes same characters or, or same factions, same world. Like this would have, been, it would have been an interesting one for them to come back to and explore that compassion angle more and maybe give us a more uplifting ending, you know? Yeah. But maybe that's how the humans actually do rebel successfully against the, uh, what are the, whatever they're called, the, the alligator men. Yeah. Give them a, a gift basket of Saragon oil. And then the, they would, they'll realize, oh, the, the, the Jolum really do care about me. No, no, no. I didn't mean that for them. I mean, for, <laughs> for each, each other. other to yes. like, yeah. For, <laughs> yeah the so they, can, uh, they can mount yeah. a resistance. All right. Well, let's switch gears. Let's get into the next uh, 
next anthology selection here. What do you have for us, show? All right. Well, I've got an episode of The Hammer House of Horror. Rob, do you know The Hammer House of Horror? Yes. Now, I have to say, I've I've only watched the one episode, the one we're discussing here today. But um, but it's a, it's a it's a pretty fun little series. Uh, this came out uh, what nineteen eighty. So you know we're 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 balanced right there on the edge, you know, of the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties. Essentially, it's a nineteen late nineteen seventies uh, production. Uh, comes to us from from Hammer, so it has that Hammer, you know, British horror dry vibe to it. Uh, mm-hmm. But each episode is a different story, um, and it, it, some of them have some pretty great casts. Uh, I mean, they all have, I think they all have a, a pretty great cast. There's one episode we have Peter Cushing and a young Brian Cox. If you're not sure what a young Brian Cox looks like, uh, this is an episode worth checking out. And there's another episode, by the way, titled Guardian of the Abyss. Uh, and the plot of this one involves John D's mirror, or a mirror mm-hmm. that's supposed to be one of John D's mirrors. Uh, I, I didn't get a chance to watch it in full, but I had to see if uh, what mirror they showed. And I included a picture of it here for you, Joe. It, it, is, it obviously is not... Uh, the fabled uh, magic mirror, the Aztec mirror that uh, that John D actually had. This is a, a real. They really gothed this one up. They had to make it look <laughs> like a like a European haunted mirror. Yeah, it's got a, like a silver rim and a bunch of elaborate handles. Get out of here with that. Give me that yeah, black kind of circle. gorgon face on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this episode that we're going to talk about here uh, is titled "The Mark of Satan." Yes, and boy, does it have that hammer horror feel. Like you say, it's got that late 70s British thing. It just, Mm -hmm. uh, this whole thing just, like, it smells like back bacon, you know, (laughs) Heinz baked beans. It's all there. You can smell it through the film. Uh, So this episode, I guess I'll describe it first, and then we can talk about uh, what, what this connected to for me. So this episode begins with a scene of brain surgery. You've got a team of doctors who are opening up a patient's skull and suddenly the patient, uh, he, he seems to show signs of awareness. His eyes start to move, scanning the room. He twitches. You see these uh, sort of flickers of waxing consciousness. And then the patient starts to talk in the middle of the brain surgery. He's moaning and he says, leave my soul alone. Mm. Solid opening. They had me right there at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, we got a supernatural or potentially supernatural hospital drama, some sort of intense surgery with all sorts of tools and like clamps holding the 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 character's uh, head in place. Yeah, leave my soul alone. <laughs> so next we meet our protagonist who is named Edwin Roard, and Edwin works in the morgue at the same hospital. He is assigned to process the cadaver of the patient from the surgery in the opening scene. And we learn in this in this next scene that the patient was someone named Samuel Holt. Now, Roard is played by the actor Peter McHenry, who was born in 1940. And uh, he's quite good in this. He plays a nice focal point of insanity. You know, that kind of uh, that, that necessary character to so many weird tales where like the, the madness is overtaking them. Um, I, I was not really familiar with this guy, but he uh, you know, he had a strong career on the British stage and on television. Uh, among other things, he was in the 1973 horror anthology film Tales That Witness Madness. And another interesting genre piece that he's credited uh, to is a, a film I haven't seen, but now I'm super interested in, Footprints on the Moon from 1975. Um, which uh, also featured Klaus Kinski in a role. It was a, a well-received, seemingly surreal giallo film by Luigi Bazzoni, in which uh, um, the actor Florinda Bolkin plays a woman who is psychologically disturbed by these dreams she keeps having about an astronaut dying on the moon. Wow. Yeah, so I love that pitch. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'd never heard of it. Uh, uh, yeah, I got to look that up. A couple of other actors of note in this one. Conrad Phillips, who lived 1925 through 2016, plays um, uh, Dr. Manders, a delightfully impish character. Yeah, he's, uh, well, there's a part near the beginning where he's like, well, gentlemen, we are looking at the mortal remains of an individualist. (laughs) And then we also have Georgina Hale in this, who was born in 1943. She plays Stella. Uh, She was in a number of Ken Russell movies, including uh, 1971's The Devils, which is, is, of course, uh, an excellent and, uh, and famed film. Infamous, I'm to understand. In, infamous in some circles as well, but uh, and and for a long time, hard hard to get your hands on. But uh, 
at any rate, um, it, a, a notable film, uh, no matter where you stand on it, whether you want to, uh, to view it or, or burn it. Well, so getting back to the plot of the episode, uh, we go through the autopsy of the patient from the opening scene, Samuel Holt, who was in, in brain surgery and said, leave my soul alone. We, uh, it is revealed that prior to his brain surgery, this patient, Samuel Holt, had tried to perform a self-trepanation. He attempted to create a hole in his own skull with a power drill, allegedly to relieve pressure in his brain. Uh, I think Dr. Manders has some kind of comment about this. He's like, uh, you know, pressure in the brain leads to a trip to the old ironmonger. <laughs> <laughs> and while sewing up Holt's body after the autopsy, uh, Edwin accidentally pricks his finger with the suture needle. And at first, he doesn't think anything of this. He just puts some iodine on it. But when his boss finds out, his boss gets very upset. He's like, uh-uh-uh. He tells Edwin that he needs to go to casualty and uh, I think it tells him he needs to get his tetanus shots and a bunch of stuff uh, because, well, it turns out that when Holt was dying of a blood clot in the brain, Holt himself had believed that uh, this this was caused by an infection, an infection that he called an evil virus. So the guy who said, leave my soul alone, he believed he was infected with a virus of evil. Mm. Uh, now, a couple of threads begin to develop in this episode that reflect something about Edwin's deteriorating uh, psychological state. So one thing is that Edwin perceives a strange pattern emerging. Uh, everywhere he goes, he notices the number nine. There's an office sweepstakes that pays out a prize of nine pounds. He has to store Holt's body in freezer number nine. He has to sew up a body using nine stitches to every three inches and things like that. Uh, even more alarmingly, he sometimes believes he can hear radio signals in his head, and these are uh, seemingly broadcasted from a weather vane on the roof of the hospital. Beyond that, he starts to believe that crowds of ominous strangers wearing sunglasses are sort of following him around town, watching him and menacing him. Now, eventually we see uh, his home situation, which is that Edwin is single and he lives in a house with his extremely grumpy and judgmental mother, uh, <laughs> along with a tenant who lives in the house named Stella. And this is uh, this character is played by Georgina Hale. Edwin, uh, at some point, tells Stella about, you know, he's explaining the delusions he's experiencing. And she very unhelpfully is pretty much like, oh, yeah, 999. Yep. Um <laughs> And so it seems like everywhere he goes, things are, nobody's really intervening to make things better. Uh, so his psychological state worsens. He comes to believe that his mother has somehow infected him with an evil virus that is attacking his brain. And he believes that she may have killed his father years ago with the same virus, though it seems his father actually died of meningitis. At one point, Edwin visits a priest to seek counsel and then the priest, uh, very helpfully, decides to tell him about the passage in the book of Revelation <laughs> concerning the number of the beast. So it's like, oh, yes, uh, this man is suffering from some form of psychosis. What he needs is the book of Revelation. Yeah, it's like, well, the faith offers many directions for your, um, your, uh, your, your, your confusion and obsession. Uh, let me tell you about it. So from here, things get worse and worse. Edwin ends up doing murders. Uh, he, he's having these full-blown delusions that a, a coven of Satan-worshipping doctors and acquaintances of his have put a virus in his brain in order to control him and that they want him to eat a baby for Satan. <laughs> But then there's a strange – so, uh, you know, this could just be a story about a man losing his mind. But uh, the the episode develops that the same exact delusion we discover was held by the man from the surgery at the beginning of the episode, Samuel Holt. Mm. And in the end, Edwin, like Holt, tries to relieve himself of the pressure by f performing a self-trepanation with an electric drill. And he also, like Holt, ends up in neurosurgery, an echo of the opening scene – and uh, the doctors are operating on Edwin's brain, and we hear a moaning plea, leave my soul alone. Mm. And the ending is very ambiguous. I think the viewer is meant to understand that there actually is no satanic coven, and that this is in Edwin's head. But I think the unanswered question in the narrative is whether Edwin was somehow actually infected 
with this demonic obsession and and uh, this this imagery when he pricked his finger while he was working on Holt's body it sort of raises this question of would it be possible for this this series of demonic images and ideas to somehow infect a person like an evil virus hmm. now i i don't know of any realistic mechanism by which something like this would happen i i kind of doubt there is but i would like to explore a sort of related idea that that is quite real which has to do with the idea of a relationship between virus-like mechanisms and the deep contents of the human brain, even things that somebody might think of as the soul. Now, um, the fact that this episode uh, centers around, around trepanation, uh, I found kind of interesting, especially since it came out in Britain in 1980. This would have been right after the Countess of Weems and... Uh, and Mark, uh, Amanda Fielding, first ran for British Parliament on the platform Trepanation for the National Health, advocating research into its benefits. Um, she famously uh, trepanned herself in 1970 following Dutch trepanation proponent Bart uh, Hugis's example. And, um, you know, this uh, may, may sound a, a, a bit crazy, but as, uh, as Michael Pollan pointed out in his excellent book, How to Change Your Mind, uh, Fielding has proven herself to be an effective drug policy reformer uh, in subsequent years, lobbyist and research coordinator. In 1998, she founded the Foundation to Further Consciousness, later renamed uh, the Beckley Foundation, which supports neuroscientific research. Her recent and current work, Pollan writes, shifted away from trepanation and towards the possibilities posed by psychedelics. So you think it's possible this episode was influenced by, by her famous uh, advocacy for, for drilling a hole in your skull? Yes. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would almost bet on it. You know, it seems like yeah. the, the time, you know, like a lot of horror uh, fiction, you know, it, it speaks to what's going on in the, the public mindset. And so I, I feel like there was, just, there was just too much trepanation in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the air for this not to be kind of a, at least a partial response to it. Not that it has anything particularly, uh, you know, deep to say about trepanation itself, <laughs> other, but it's uh, it's it lean it's a it's just a concept that leans uh, 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 that allows one to lean into the horror a bit. You know, it's it's just uh, it's like a, uh, you know, it's like flypaper for for horror writing. Now, if you'd like to hear more about about trepanation, though, we we did an episode several years back titled "The Stone of Madness." Um, that gets into all of that and, you know, it's sort of the, the older historical idea of trepanation as well as um, the, the, uh, the more you know, modern 20th century advocates of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the basic idea uh, came down in, in the modern sense that you have um, uh, you know, an increase of blood in the brain that could bring about altered states of consciousness, uh, etc. It's a, it's a really fascinating, um, fascinating topic. To be clear, this is what was claimed by its advocates, not that we're advocating trepanation. Right, right. There's no, I, I don't, don't believe there's any scientific evidence that it actually works, but it, it had its vocal proponents. But if you're even halfway tempted, I think you should, you should take, uh, you should just follow the, uh, uh, the model of Amanda Fielding, who, uh, who again has turned away from, um, from advocating trepanation and looking more into uh, actual, uh, you know, legitimate research into psychedelics. Uh, so, you know, ultimately that, that's, that's a whole area of research that does not require drilling a hole in your skull. And it goes without saying, don't drill a hole in your skull, especially based on anything that you hear on this podcast. Or see on the Hammer House of Horror. Right, yeah. Don't make uh, major life decisions based on the ha Hammer House of Horror series. But on the subject of viruses in mind, uh, th this, this does bring up a really interesting question of like, did you ever wonder, you know, down at the cell level, at the molecular level, what is the mechanism of say memory formation you know our memories to to a great extent are a lot of what makes us who we are and so you might say that in a metaphorical sense you know memories are a big part of what would make your soul and so i was reading about some interesting research in a couple of articles from january of 2018 one of them was uh, a a news feature in nature by sarah reardon called cells hack virus like protein to communicate and another one was in the atlantic by ed yong called brain cells share information with virus like capsules mm. and these two articles were in turn uh summarizing and reacting to the pretty much simultaneous publication of a couple of scientific papers in the journal cell 
both concerning a very interesting gene and its associated protein, which is known as ARC, ARC, A-R-C. Uh, one of these papers was by Ashley et al. In, in Cell, and the other one was by Patushin et al. Now, the gene known as ARC is present in all kinds of different uh, organisms. You, you can find uh, different versions of it, say, in human cells, in the cells of mice, in the cells of uh, flies, like Drosophila flies, in the cells of reptiles and birds. And uh, it apparently encodes a product known as the ARC protein, where ARC stands for Activity-Regulated Cytoskeleton-Associated Protein. And ARC has been known about since the 1990s, but some recent discoveries have made it seem even more interesting. Uh, and, and there's an interesting scene that uh, Ed Yong describes in his article about this, where he's summarizing the research on uh, one of the authors on one of these papers, a neuroscientist named Jason Shepard, who works at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, who was studying uh, the ARC gene and its associated proteins in mice, in the, I believe, the... Uh, in the motor neurons of mice. And what the article describes is that Jason Shepard was observing the proteins that were made by this gene under a, under a highly powerful microscope. And when he first saw the structures, what he thought was that they looked like viruses. Now, of course, these are not viruses. These are not external infectious agents. These are structures that are produced by the natural cells in a mouse's body. So what both of these papers were looking at were uh, they were studying what are known as extracellular vesicles. And these are sort of little chunks of cell membranes that separate from their original host cells and then they go off somewhere and do their own thing. So that, you know, they actually are a part of a cell that leaves the cell and floats free of it to maybe go uh, connect with another cell or do something else in the body. And uh, extracellular vesicles can be found all throughout the body, but there are a lot of questions about what they do. We don't really know a lot. Uh, and apparently these two teams were looking at these, uh, these extracellular vesicles that were released by various neurons, cells in the nervous system, to find out what they were doing. And they independently found that the vesicles that are released by neurons in both flies and mice contain this ARC gene. Now, it's interesting because there is already... Uh, existing research to show some things about this ARC gene. For example, that the ARC gene helps neurons uh, form connections between one another. And of course, connections between neurons underlie a lot of what the brain does. And there is also research to show very interesting macrobehavioral effects of the ARC gene. For example, mice that are genetically altered to lack the ARC gene have difficulty with memory formation tasks. It seems like they can't learn. They can't make long-term memories. So say if you train a, a mouse to run a maze, if they don't have the ARC gene, they can't make the ARC protein, they apparently can't learn anything about the maze that sticks with them. They might have to you hmm. know, do the maze as if for the first time every time. So it seems that ARC is very important in whatever process it is in the brain that turns experiences into structural changes in the brain that would, you know, allow you to, say, cement a memory that could be referenced later on. Uh, but I mentioned that uh, Ed Yong's article uh, describes the scene where this researcher is looking at the, uh, at the ARC proteins under the microscope, and that when he examined them, he saw what looked like these, these hollow shells that very much resembled viruses. Specifically, they looked like textbook illustrations of HIV, which of course hmm. is a, a type of virus known as a retrovirus. And apparently uh, Shepard uh, ran these images by some uh, viral experts, and they did confirm that, yes, these shells that were being made by these cells within the mice's bodies looked a lot like the protein shells, the capsids that you would find around viruses like HIV. So apparently the ARC genes that you would find in animals like mice today – it descends from an ancient class of ancestral genes, uh, types of retrotransposons, and they can be found in the genomes of all kinds of animals, as I said. But these genes are very interesting in that they can behave almost like independent infectious agents. They can copy themselves and then insert those copies of themselves somewhere else within the host's genome. But apparently at some point, these ancestral retrotransposons gain the ability not only to copy and paste themselves elsewhere within the genome, 
but to build a protein shell, essentially to build themselves a spaceship that would surround this gene, surround this length of genetic material, and then allow this cage-protected strand of genetic information to leave its original host cell, to fly off into space and and to go boldly. Hmm. And Ed Yong writes that this actually is believed to be the origin of retroviruses. So in a way, we have these genes within our bodies that are actually cousins of wild, infectious retroviruses that infect people and harm them. Uh, and, it, and this apparently is why the shells or the capsids made by these uh, stretches of DNA are so similar. The ARC gene that you find in animals is apparently very similar to a viral gene called a GAG gene. And, and again, this is the gene that codes for the construction of this, this protein shell, the capsid, uh, that protects the, the genetic material of a virus and allows it to get into a cell and infect it. So what we have here is that there are cells within the, the brains or the nervous systems of animals as diverse uh, as, you know, from mice to, to drosophila to flies – that use this gene similar to a gene found in viruses to build this protein shell or or capsid, this structure to surround a strand of RNA-based information like viruses do and then send that RNA information to another cell again like viruses do. Uh, So so in a way, you could look at the, the brain cells as using a very similar structure to what is used in viruses to sort of infect one another with something, with some kind of RNA information. So why would cells in the brain be doing this? And one possibility is that it's a way for neurons to sort of control each other, to exert some kind of pressure or influence on each other. Of course, in the case of a virus, a virus wants to infect a new cell so that it makes more copies of the virus. But in this case, a neuron could maybe use ARC to send RNA to a nearby cell, which upon arrival would influence which genes are activated within that cell. Hmm. Now, there are still tons of questions that we don't have answered about what what is going on here. Like, what is exactly this RNA cargo for? Uh, what does it do? Uh, what does it do exactly? Though, again, it, it's very interesting to view this virus-like behavior at the at the cell level uh, in light of what we know about the macro behavioral effects of the ARC gene. Once again, if you disable ARC, a mouse without it apparently can't learn or make memories. Fascinating. So we have this, this, this kind of ancestral, potential ancestral viral component to, uh, to, to, to some of the, like the basic attributes of what we think, uh, to think, think of having a mind or having a, certainly having consciousness, but even having just like a functional animal brain. Right. Though a very interesting thing is though lots of animals have ARC, they're mm-hmm. not all descended from a common ARC ancestor, or at least not within the animal line. So fruit flies have ARC genes, mice have ARC genes, humans have ARC genes. But it appears that, say, flies and vertebrates acquired these, gene- these similar genes from different sources – uh, in uh, to quote Ed Yong, in separate events that took place millions of years apart, and yet they've both got this stuff. So it seems like it is something that is probably liable to be co-opted by by animal genomes in a way that is very useful, su- such that it happened multiple times in the history of life. And so there are all these really interesting possibilities about what this could mean in terms of uh, learning more about uh, how our brains work and, and how our bodies evolved, but also in even potentially in, in, in therapeutics. Because as uh, we were talking about, ARC has been highlighted as possibly playing a role in a number of neurological disorders, including some age-related loss of mental capacity. Uh, so uh, Jason Shepard is uh, quoted in, in Ed Yong's article as as observing that the brains of young mice produce way more ARC protein than the brains of old mice. And it looks like that possibly by inducing a an increased supply of ARC protein in an older mouse's brain, the older mouse's brain will show improved abilities to learn and adapt, maybe acting a little bit more like a younger mouse's brain, having that, uh, that more uh, plastic potential. Hmm. So I, I found this fascinating that it, it could quite literally be the case that there's something pretty much like a virus in the brain that makes our minds what they are. That's fascinating. And it, of course, to, now to bring it back to Hammer House of Horrors, um, not obviously, 
nobody's making the point that this research means that this episode is entirely possible or practical or anything to that matter. Proven, Uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Proof of the episode um, revealed. But uh, no, it... um, it does make you, uh, uh, you know, sort of reflect on the the seemingly outrageous uh, notion here, maybe being a little more reasonable than one might uh, assume just on watching it. I mean, obviously, I, I can't imagine how arc uh, proteins or something similar would make you, uh, you know, start um, obsessing over numerology and uh, feeling like you have uh, you know, there's a there's an outside pressure from people in sunglasses for you to eat a baby, but. Uh, <laughs> but but still, uh, you know the, the basic premise, uh, you know, matches up with this idea a little bit. Segue to something totally different. I remember when I was a kid one time. This is one of my hotel cable memories. Do you have hotel cable memories from being? A oh kid? yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. One of mine was uh, we went somewhere. We had the hotel channels, and I saw an episode of Hammer House of Horror when I was way too young. <laughs> and I don't remember much about it except that it was an episode that had a werewolf in it. And then the real twist was uh, – so you think, okay, werewolf. Somebody's going to get you know bit by the werewolf, going to get mauled, mm-hmm. and that's the real uh, – th- that's the shocker at the end. But instead, somebody got killed with an axe in the werewolf episode oh, just wow. by like a guy with an axe. I wonder if that was the Peter Cushing episode. I think that one involves animal-human hybrids. I don't think it had Peter Cushing because I think I would have recognized him at least from Star Wars. Okay, um, I, I you know this whole uh, mention of this episode it does make me wonder like what was in the the waters to uh, uh, to inspire these other elements. You know, we can point to the the trepanation influence uh, that would have been you know present in the news and so forth, uh, but this idea of uh, of a virus, uh, an evil virus. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of the plot of uh, The Creeping Flesh from 1973, which had Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in it. And it involves the development of a serum against evil. <laughs> the idea hmm. that, that you could, uh, you could that uh, I think Peter Cushing's character is working on developing one and about to have a big breakthrough. Like, where, where did this strange, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of a, you know, a dumb idea on, in some you know respect is very uh, it reduces the the idea of uh, of evil to something that you know kind of like getting back to the brainwashing uh, deprogramming idea that something has been done and it can be undone like mm-hmm. that that evil uh, is a broad tent concept <laughs> in uh, in in human civilization uh, that we could find some sort of underlying cause of it uh, cause uh, behind it and, uh, and 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 effectively remove it and everything would be fine. You know, sometimes a dumb idea is a brilliant idea. There, there's almost something exactly like that in uh, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. You know, the, no, yeah, they discover right. like they discover essentially a jar of Satan. It's like this yes, physical yes. substance, or it's not quite. It's some. I think they call it like the anti god, and there's the anti god. Yeah, there's some um, very loose uh, pseudo scientific connections. Uh, actually, well, I mean, talking about real physics, but the the connections, I guess, would be the pseudo part. Uh, where they're saying, oh, yeah, so there's a particle and an antiparticle in, in modern physics. And so you uh, have the same thing is true. Like God is like the particle, and then you've got an antiparticle, uh, anti-God that they come together and they annihilate. Yeah, I, I agree, though. A dumb idea taken to uh, to the limit, you know, <laughs> it, can, it can make it uh, very entertaining. Or sometimes a kind of dumb or traditional idea uh, given a new coat of paint using, uh, you know, some current scientific buzzwords, uh, you know, or something from the headlines, like that can make all the difference as well. Because the basic idea here is like is a curse idea, a contagious mm-hmm. curse. Man catches curse from cursed individual and then has to deal with the curse. It's not unlike many werewolf stories, except instead of the curse of turning into a wolf uh, and killing people, it's this uh, this curse of of, of these uh, these various uh, more uh, you know uh, I guess more obscure, uh, more mysterious um, psychological uh, issues popping up. Yeah. And that ultimately makes it more terrifying because it's it, these are these are things that uh, that we can point to in the real world that he's suffering. You know, like sudden obsession over things. Uh, you know, a change in behavior or consciousness. Well, and in the light of uh, the scientific stuff we were talking about today, I think I don't know. It sort of invites you to rethink the idea of what a what a virus or infectious agent is. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. we naturally think of infectious agents as 
things that are bad and harmful because I mean, usually when it's like, it is a, you know, a pathogen in the body that is infecting you in order to make copies of itself. And it doesn't really care how much, you know, if it makes you miserable or debilitates you some way in the process, that's obviously bad. But there are also these um, essentially things that function like infectious agents that have very similar behaviors that are within the body. And they might even be things that make you who you are in a very inextricable way. Yeah. And kind of driving home what, uh, you know, to come come back around to Ed Yong and his work, uh, the idea that, you know, we are multitudes, you know, that Mm -hmm. uh, that this idea of there being this single thing and this is what we are, uh, you know, is is obviously um, a fallacy. But then, you know, when you start looking at like the the organism itself, well, there is the organism, but then there are all the additional organisms within it that make make it up and and influence uh, the, the ultimate presentation and experience. Right. I mean, so you you could make distinctions that are valid distinctions. You can look at a cell in the body and say, this is an animal cell. This is a mm-hmm. you know mammalian cell. And then this is a bacterial cell. But in fact, I think it, he makes a good case that when we think about what we are, it should probably actually include both. Like the bacteria are also us. Yeah. Now, if you're interested in watching Hammer House of Horror, um, our producer Seth informs us that as of this recording, it is currently available on Peacock. Uh, I was looking around and I found it um, available to uh, to view as a part of a few different streaming packages online, you know, various channels. Uh, so it's it's definitely out there. Um, you know, multiple episodes. This is the only one I've seen, and uh, and I don't have the the benefit of your uh, your uh, your hotel. Uh, cable experience of of watching uh, uh, watching it earlier in life, but um, but uh, it looks like a really it's a really good show. As I, like I say, check out the, the the titles, check out the the cast members. Uh, there are uh, several of these that look really interesting. Got that classic British grime. Yeah. All right. Well, we'd love to hear from everyone. Of course. Uh, do you have favorite episodes of the Hammer House of Horror? Uh, favorite episodes of the 90s Outer Limits series you'd like to chat about with us? Uh, well, let us know. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you have thoughts about the, the scientific or cultural topics that we touched on in these episodes, uh, yeah, everything's fair game. Write in. Uh, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd love to discuss it with you. Our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Check them out in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. That is where you'll find them wherever you get your podcasts. We also have listener mail on Mondays, Artifact on Wednesdays and Weird House Cinema on Fridays. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.